Hi everybody, this is Cale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. So good to be with you as we continue our series on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans. Our production schedule got a little bit uh, hampered somewhat by a big snowstorm in the Chicago area, the headquarters of Relevant Radio. Kind of played havoc with our schedule, but we are back on track now as we get into Romans chapter 9. Let's pick it up where St. Paul is writing in Romans 9, starting with verse 6. He writes, But it is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his descendants. But through Isaac shall your descendants be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as descendants. For this is what the promise said, About this time I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, let's stop there now. Does this mean that God actually hated Esau with a passion? I don't think so. We'll, we'll get into that in just a little bit, what this really means. It's an important question. So the big question here for St. Paul is essentially this. Did God fail? Did God fail? Because the situation in Paul's day in the first century is very similar to the situation in our own day, in which the majority of Jews, the majority of Israelites, did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Now, some did, many did. In fact, thousands did in the early church period, and this is not often well known. But the early church is, is a mix of Jew and Gentile. But, but still, even in Paul's day, not everybody accepted this message. And Paul is extremely hurt by this uh, as a rabbi himself, who has come to see that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and also the Messiah of the whole world. But did God fail somehow? in his promises to Israel? Absolutely not. And one of the things that Paul is showing here in this passage is that even in the Old Testament, God never promised that every individual Israelite would be saved, would make it to heaven. There was always what was called a faithful remnant. Now, this is all throughout the Old Testament. You'll see a remnant of faithful ones, even within Israel at certain times. And maybe it looked like most of them had, or maybe the majority of them had not remained faithful to God. There was always a faithful remnant. And Paul's going to talk about this a little bit later uh, in uh, chapter 9. But here's the thing too. God is also free. He is sovereign. And he can bring other people into his people, if that makes any sense. He can bring Gentiles into the new Israel, the church, so that there is Jew and Gentile worshiping together. And in fact, this is exactly what God has also promised would happen in the old covenant time. So what Paul is going to do here in, in these uh, verses that we just read, and I'm going to explain them. He's going to make an absolutely brilliant rabbinical argument, as usual. Rabbi Saul, who became Paul, is an incredibly 
gifted mind and scholar of scripture. So he's going to talk about two sets of brothers to bring out, to sort of in flesh, if you will, what he's trying to say here. And, and the bottom line is this, that God never fails. He always keeps his promises and he is consistent in the way that he acts in the old covenant and also in the new. There are not two different gods operating here, folks. And, and it was a heresy in the early church. There were some noted heretics like Marcion who said that, well, the old covenant God, the old Testament God is a different God from the God of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Old Testament God is vengeful. Uh, he, he's just capricious, nasty. You can't trust him. But the God of Jesus Christ is a God of love, justice, and truth. No, no, that's not the case. It's the same God. As Hebrews tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God. But we were not always the same, as Peter Kreef likes to say. We were not always the same because this is the divine pedagogy. God has to grow us up. He has to teach his children. He has to teach the world about his ways. And he did that in a certain way. He started with Abraham, in many ways, the first one who became the father of faith, not only for Jews, but Christians too. But he was essentially, essentially the first Israelite. So let's look at the, this, this first two sets of brothers here, starting with verse 7. Now, this is really interesting here. Paul writes, not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants, but, and he's quoting scripture here, through Isaac shall your descendants be named. So what's, what is he talking about here? He's talking about two different Israels. There's, I guess you could say, as one scholar puts it, a physical Israel, and this is kind of based on physical descent, on genetics and, and ethnic identity. But then there is a, quote unquote, spiritual Israel. Now, what, what does St. Paul mean by the spiritual Israel? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The spiritual Israel is the church. In one of his other letters, Galatians, in chapter 6, verse 16, St. Paul says that the entire church is, in, in essence, a new Israel. Which includes, which includes Jews and Gentiles. He says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. End of quote. Now that's Galatians 6.16. So the church essentially is Judaism or Israel with the Messiah having come in the flesh. And that's Jesus Christ. And, and so this is now opened up to all the world, just as God promised to Abraham that his descendants would be so numerous, they'd be like the stars of, in the heavens, the grains of sand on the seashore. Can't count them all. He eventually wanted to get his message to all people, but he started, of course, with Abraham. Now, of course, Abraham, the way, the way, the way God planned things for Abraham, Abraham kind of thought that God maybe needed a bit of help because God had said, you're going to have a son, He's going to be the heir of promise to you. You're going to have something. And Abraham said, well, how is this possible? Because I am super, super old. I, I'm, I'm about 100 years old. My wife, Sarah, is, isn't much younger. And she is obviously decades and decades past her childbearing years. She's totally infertile. So Abraham decides to take matters into his own hands. And he takes his servant girl, Really, I guess you could say she was the servant of Sarah, Hagar. 
and impregnates her, she gives birth to Ishmael. And then there's a huge, huge problem because God's like, no, that, that's not what I meant, Abraham. You're actually going to have a son with Sarah, your actual wife. But don't worry, I'm going to take care of those two. I'm going to take care of Ishmael, going to take care of Hagar. You are going to have your own son with Sarah, and he will be called Isaac. He's going to be the child of promise. And so what Paul says here, this is really interesting. He's essentially saying that not all children of Abraham are offspring of Abraham. Now, what, is it, what does he mean by that? As, as the, uh, the translation I read to you, it calls them descendants. Not all children of Abraham are descendants of Abraham. So this is what the children would be physical descendants of Abraham, ethnic Israelites, if you will. The offspring or the descendants, he's talking about spiritual children of Abraham. Now, some of the children are also offspring. Some of the physical descendants of Israel are also members of spiritual Israel as well, spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham, but some are not. So that, that's kind of what's going on here. Not all Abraham's children are his offspring or his descendants. They're not all spiritual children of faith like Abraham. So he says here in, in, uh, in verse 8, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as descendants. He goes on to say in verse 9, For this is what the promise said, About this time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Okay, now, the way, that, the way that Paul quotes the Old Testament, he quotes the Old Testament here more than any other, in any other parts of his letters. Sometimes he quotes Scripture directly. Sometimes he, he kind of approximates Scripture. He kind of recalls Scripture, maybe massages the text a little bit for his own purposes. Sometimes he, he jams two verses together to make a point. And that's kind of what he does here. He's kind of quoting Genesis chapter 18, verse 10, and Genesis 18, 14, here in verse 9, when he says, About this time I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. But the point is basically the same. The point is the same. That even though Sarah was infertile, she was going to miraculously bear the child of promise. So what does this mean? It means that you can't claim simple membership in the people of God ethnically, through descent, through parents, grandparents, whatever. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. You also have to be a child of faith. You have to understand that God's free action, it's God's grace who brings you into relationship with him. You've got to be spiritually in the people of God as well. And by the way, the same is true for Catholics. You can't say, well, my family's been Catholic for generations. You know, we come from the old country, we're all Catholic, everybody's Catholic, we're all baptized. Baptism is not a golden ticket to heaven. You can't rely on physical descent, you can't rely on baptismal membership. It's a starting point, but you have to ratify it. You have to become not only baptized, but you got to ratify that faith with the choices that you make by faith. And so this is really, really important. And what Paul is, is kind of setting up here is what he's going to really flesh out in, in the next illustration. He's going to talk about another set of brothers because 
it would be easy maybe for somebody to say, all right, all right, all right. So you're talking about Abraham and his wife, Sarah. They have their own kid, Isaac. He's the child of the promise. Uh, of course, Ishmael is not the child of the promise. He, he, his mom is somebody completely different. It's Hagar. But Paul says, well, in, in case you're thinking that, I'm going to give you another example about another set of brothers. And by the way, these guys have the same parents, the same mother and father, and to top it all off, they were conceived at exactly the same time. They're twins. Let's see what he says here. Let's look at verse uh, 10. But not only so, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. Verse 12, she was told, the elder will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, so he goes to the very next generation. Isaac himself gets married to Rebekah. He has two sons here. We are talking about specifically the twins, Jacob and Esau. All right. Now, God reverses the natural order of birth by his own sovereign choice. This is a patriarchal society. The firstborn is super, super important. Now, of course, Esau was the firstborn, but he didn't get the blessing. And we know why. We, we talked about this in some detail in the Genesis series, Jacob tricked his brother, tricked his dad. We get this, but here's the thing. As as St. Paul points out, even before they were born, as Paul says, before they'd done anything good or bad, while they were still in the womb, God made a sovereign choice to pick Jacob over Esau. And so he gives this quote at the end here in verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, some of you guys probably think, how could God hate anybody? Does, does God select people for damnation? Is this what this is all about? This is actually another quotation of the Old Testament from Paul. This is from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Now, the, the, the word hate here, when he says, Esau, I hated, this is not the kind of hate that we think about in the 21st century. It doesn't mean to love somebody less than another person, or, or even a lot, lot less, to, to the point where you, I actively hate you. No, this is not what it's about. This means I reject. Essentially, the word hate here means reject. Jacob, I chose. Esau, I rejected. But I don't, I don't hate Esau's guts. I still love him. I, in fact, I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to take care of his people. And don't forget, Paul's quoting from the book of Malachi here. And Malachi is concerned about, in the Old Testament, he's concerned about the nation of Israel and the Edomites, the nation of Edom. The Edomites are descendants of Esau. And so basically he's saying, I, I sovereignly chose the people of Israel to be my people. I, I rejected Edom. I, I still love them. I just didn't choose them. I could have. I could do whatever I want. I'm sovereign. But I, I picked Israel. So that, that's that's really what it's what it's all about here. So these quotations here that, that Paul is bringing up here, this is the way that God has always acted in history. It's not about uh, who, who gets to go to heaven. It's not about predestination or God predestined some people to heaven and some to hell. That's a heresy. That's a Calvinist heresy. It's not true. Everybody, he loves everyone. He wants everybody to go to heaven. Now, you can choose to say no to that by rejecting him through sin. 
That's what uh, mortal sin does. It separates us from God for all eternity if we don't repent from it. But God is always the same through all the covenants that he made. Mark Twain said, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And that's certainly true of salvation history. God is always the same. He always fulfills his promises. Okay, one thing I wanted to say is applying this to us as Catholics once again. When I came back into the Catholic Church in 2004, one of the reasons why that happened was I attended a talk given by our own Patrick Madrid here at Relevant Radio at the Franciscan University of Steubenville at their Defending the Faith Conference. And I was there kind of as an interested observer. I was thinking about coming back into the Catholic Church. I was a Protestant minister at the time. But I was sort of thinking that I could just learn Catholic stuff and just continue on teach in a Protestant context and educate people about the Catholic Church. One of the things that Patrick said in his talk, he quoted Lumen Gentium, one of the documents of Vatican II on the church. And I'll never forget this, Lumen Gentium chapter 14. It says, this sacred council wishes to turn its attention firstly to the Catholic faithful, basing itself upon sacred scripture and tradition. It teaches that the church now sojourning on earth as an exile is necessary for salvation. Christ, present to us in his body, which is the church, is the one mediator and the unique way of salvation. In explicit terms, he himself affirmed the necessity of faith and baptism and thereby affirmed also the necessity of the church. For through baptism as through a door, men enter the church. Whoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter or to remain in it, could not be saved. End of quote. And boy, those words hit me like a ton of bricks. Now, it's one thing if you don't know if the Catholic Church is the true church necessary by Christ, but if you do know that the Catholic Church is the one true church, it was made necessary by Jesus Christ, and you say, hey, I'm going to either refuse to enter the church or to remain in that church. Cannot be saved. Whew, man, I realized that my very salvation was at stake. And it talks about the need to remain in the faith, the need to ratify one's faith. And understand that, hey, you don't, you, none of this is, is anything that we deserve. This is a grace that was bestowed upon us by Jesus Christ in here. Here's a scary thought. This is also from the same uh, section in Lumen Gentium 14. He is not saved who, though part of the body of the church, does not persevere in charity, that is, in love. He remains indeed in the bosom of the church, but, as it were, only in a bodily manner and not in his heart. All the church's children should remember that their exalted status is to be attributed not to their own merits, but to the special grace of Christ. If they fail, moreover, to respond to that grace in thought, word, and deed, not only shall they not be saved, but they will be the more severely judged. End of quote. That is a powerful and sobering statement. It's the McDonald's argument, as I like to say. You can walk into McDonald's, but it doesn't make you a hamburger. You can be in the church in body, but you need to be united to Jesus Christ in faith and respond to God's grace and thought, word, and deed. And this is what what St. Paul is saying. It's not just being physically present in the people of God. It's not through hereditary uh, means that this passed on. It's by 
corresponding to God in faith in the new Israel, the church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile, that we remain united with God. Uh, More on this in the next episode of Romans. We'll continue our journey through Romans chapter 9. But right now, it's time to open up the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Okay, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, I want to remind you once again, you can find me on the x.com app, formerly known as Twitter. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. You can send me a message there or email me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And today's message does come to me through email. It's from Derek writing in Texas. And he says this, hello, Kale. I have a question about some things I have been reading on X. Speaking of the X app, question about some things I've been reading about X about the Jewish people. I keep reading passages from a book called the Talmud that are absolutely horrible. Do all Jews follow this book? I know Messianic Jews have accepted Jesus and are essentially Protestant, but do the rest follow that book or is it just a specific sect? I know we should always love everyone and I am by no means perfect, but some of the passages I've read are extremely hard to turn the other cheek to. Do we just let God handle it and love everyone? Thanks for everything, Kale. Love your show a lot. Best regards, Derek. Thank you so much, Derek, for, for writing in. I really appreciate the email. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to read your mind here because I don't have full information. And if I've misunderstood you, feel free to send me another email just to clarify uh, what you're talking about here. Uh, first of all, I would say, yeah, great, great idea. Love everyone. That's what God commands. Absolutely, we have to love everyone. Love all, serve all. It's kind of like the Hard Rock Cafe gospel. It's so true. But your question is specifically about the Talmud. Uh, you say you keep reading things in the Talmud that are horrible. I, I'm i assuming that what you mean by that is what the Talmud says about Jesus. Now, I could be wrong, and if I am wrong about that, disabuse me of that notion. If you have other questions, send me an email. So I, I do want to talk about what the Talmud says about Jesus. And it's really interesting, actually, and we'll, we'll get into this. And as we've been talking about on The Faith Explained, especially in our Roman series, Many Jews did believe in Jesus as Messiah, but many did not. And those that did not had some pretty intense polemics about the early Christians and about Jesus. Some of this got into the Talmud. So I think this will probably have to wind up being a two-part Q&A. I think part one today, I want to explain to people what the Talmud actually is. And then secondly, we probably won't be able to get into this till the next session. I want to say what the Talmud teaches about Jesus because you need to know this as well. So what is the Talmud, first of all? It's very interesting. That there are a lot of similarities between Israel and the church in that scripture and tradition were both really, really important. Now, of course, the Hebrew scriptures, there's the Torah, the five books of Moses, the writings of the prophets, the other writings, the Psalms. These are the scriptures that Jesus was using to explain what the Bible was teaching about himself. Now, of course, the New Testament wasn't written yet. On the road to Emmaus, after the resurrection, Jesus is explaining to the two disciples on the road what the scriptures say about him. And their hearts are on fire. Now, this is the set of Hebrew scriptures that he's dealing with there. But there is also something else. There was sacred tradition, if you will, uh, amongst the Israelites. And this was known as the Oral Torah. And these are the sort of oral teachings that were passed on by word of mouth that everybody else was expected to know along with the scriptures. 
Well, how do you find these traditions? Most of them eventually got written down in the Talmud. And, and here's how it all kind of took place. Well, when the temple was destroyed, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 AD in this great war with the Romans, and I talk about this a lot, but I, I can't tell you how devastating this was uh, for the Jews when this took place. And this was something that was predicted by Jesus that would, would happen. It was a great, great national tragedy for the Jews. There no longer was any place for them uh, to sacrifice uh, to, to God. They, they couldn't have uh, the lambs at Passover sacrifice, and millions of them would be sacrificed at Passover time. All the burnt offerings. How can they fulfill what Scripture commanded them to do without a temple? Well, later on in the age of the rabbis, they started to sort of spiritualize these ideas of sacrifice. We need to make spiritual sacrifices. So after the temple was destroyed, in many ways, Jewish life and teaching began to break down a little bit. There was a guy named Rabbi Judah the Prince who, who came about, and in the year 189 A.D., he put together sort of the first piece of what came to be known as the Talmud. Now, this was called the Mishnah. This is what Rabbi Judah the Prince put together. It's, it's sort of a compendium of Jewish laws. It was called the Mishnah, and that's kind of the first layer of the Torah. And so lots of sacred tradition, if you will, was in there, teachings about all kinds of different stuff, but there's still a lot that was missing. So for several hundred years, the rabbis kind of kept going, and they decided we need to write this stuff down as well. So if you've heard if you've ever heard the, the expression the Mishnah, that's what that is. It's kind of the first layer of the Talmud. And not to complicate things even more, but there are actually two Talmuds. There's one called the Babylonian Talmud. That's the one most of you probably heard about. There's also one called the Jerusalem Talmud. So in, in this time period. And again, this is kind of parallel with the, the church kind of getting going as well. There were two main centers of Jewish learning. One was in Galilee in the north, and that's, of course, Jesus' base of operations during his ministry. And then also in Babylon, there's a huge community of Jewish scholars. And they were kind of in touch with each other. They would send letters back and forth. If they were living today, they'd be texting each other. They'd be iMessaging. They'd be in constant communication about their faith. And so which system was better, the Babylonian system or the Jerusalem system? There's one guy, famous story about a, a sage named Rav Zaira. And he said, I'm going to fast for 100 days. And the reason why I want to do this, I want to pray that God just makes me totally forget the Babylonian ways of learnings so that I can just simply glom onto the Jerusalem school, the land of Israel. I got to focus more on the Jerusalem masters. And so... The Jerusalem Talmud was put together, and then the Babylonian Talmud as well. Kind of two different streams. Basically had a different, you know, similar but different takes on Jewish teaching. But the one that you hear about really is the Babylonian Talmud. That's the one that kind of won out. The Jerusalem Talmud kind of was lost to the sands of time. Chunks of it have shown up here and there in manuscripts that they found. But it's the Babylonian Talmud. Remember, whenever somebody says the Talmud, Almost certainly they are referring to the Babylonian Talmud. And my thanks to Chabad.org for helping me to uh, learn that a little bit. And I want to pass on to you in the next episode, what does the Talmud say about Jesus? And how can we respond to this? This is an interesting 
uh, thing to, to mention that I really want to thank Derek for writing in with this question. And you can write in with yours as well. The address is faith at relevantradio.com. I'm Cale Clark for the Faith Explained. We'll see you in the next episode. God bless you and peace.